Tanisan and the Quest for Nazi Chocolate The rules that govern most of our lives do not apply to Tanisan. Not only does she occupy a unique place, existentially speaking, but has a firm grip on the levers of power, so one way or another she can just about get away with anything. This was demonstrated in her dealings with a certain Mrs Kander, whom she met again after an interval of several decades. They'd been at school together and were not exactly bosom buddies then, so it was very odd when Tanisan and friends were invited to spend the afternoon with her at a luxurious home in the exclusive Rapongi district of Tokyo. Mrs Kander had married well, and it soon became clear that the purpose of this reunion was to provide her with an opportunity to show off. On their tour of her architect-designed house, with its multi-level living space and wall-length view of the Rapongi Hills, Mrs Ishihama walked about with her mouth open, allowing various flying insects to wander in and out at will. Similarly, Messrs Sekiguchi and Terracado followed their hostess about like fawning acolytes, ooing at this and ahhing at that, while Tanisan remained steadfastly tight-lipped throughout. Finally, they were led out onto a rooftop terrace where an extraordinary range of confectionery was set out on a silver trolley. In attendance was a small, sinister-looking lady of indeterminate age and origin who appeared to be overseeing the operation. Well, I don't suppose you've ever seen anything like that before, bragged Mrs Kander, by which she meant the gleaming glass palace that she called home. Only at Disneyland? muttered Tanisan under her breath. Although I must confess, their hostess went on, I had an ulterior motive for inviting you here today. Let me introduce you to my new business partner, Mrs Zoe, a world-renowned confectioner and chocolatier who has trained in all the great chocolate houses of Switzerland. Chocolate houses? marvelled Mrs Ish, leaning over Tanisan's shoulder to whisper into her ear. Fancy that! Well, I suppose it makes sense when you think of it. After all, they're unlikely to melt, are they, up there in the mountains? Tanisan's response was to sigh irritably and to move out of earshot. With her expertise and my financial backing, said Mrs Kander, we plan to open our first exclusive cake boutique later this year. With your husband's backing, don't you mean? Tanisan muttered to herself. Unless, of course, you are personally responsible for all those dreadful high-interest loan companies that keep springing up all over the place. However, before we do so, continued Mrs Kay, oblivious to the barbed criticisms emanating from a certain quarter, we thought we'd try out our new range of confectionery on some ordinary people. And who better than my old friends from Tuhei High? So please, ladies, if you will just step up to the table... We shall begin with our first sample, which we are pleased to call Belgian Rapture. Please feel free to avail yourselves of the cut glass spittoons, which you will find conveniently located on the Doric plinths to your left and right. Tanisan's friends could hardly believe their luck. Not only had they been given a privileged insight into how the other half lived, but there was free cake. No way were they going to spit it out. So as soon as the various bits of tableware had been distributed, they got stuck in, closely monitored by Mrs Zoe, the aforementioned Bond villain, who made some observations in a little black notebook. For Tanisan, it would have been very satisfying to report a failure, cake-wise, but nothing of the sort. Mrs Zoe's culinary skill was second to none. 
Never before had she tasted chocolate of such rich, velvety creaminess, which made it all the more difficult to maintain an antagonistic attitude. In fact, she had all on to keep her feedback on the vaguely rude side. Not bad, she said of one luscious sample. Acceptable, she said of another. It all came to a head over Mrs. Zoe's signature creation, Mephisto Chocolat, which was so delectable it was like a fast-track elevator ride to chocolate heaven. Hmm, said Tanisan, having taken a second, a third, even a fourth mouthful just to be on the safe side. I'm not so sure about this one. It has a slightly bitter aftertaste. On hearing this, Mrs. Candor's expression suddenly hardened. I don't believe you, she said. You're lying. I beg your pardon, said Tanisan. You're lying, said Mrs. Candor. That's our best thing. Everybody loves it. Well, not me. It's too sweet, said Tanisan, although in actual fact there was no such concept in her worldview. I can almost feel my teeth rotting in my head. Oh, oh, I see, said Mrs. Candor, who was clearly offended. And I suppose you could do better, could you? I don't see why not, shrugged Tanisan, with absolutely no justification whatsoever. This was corroborated by Mrs. Ish, who throughout the exchange had been looking from one to another like a toddler at a tennis tournament, a large smudge of chocolate all round her mouth. But hold on, she said, you've never baked a cake in your entire... Ow! She went as Tanisan trod on her foot. I don't suppose you'd care to put that to the test, inquired their odious hostess. Why not, said Tanisan. Very well, said Mrs. Kander. Let's say this. We will meet back here exactly one week from today. You will bring along your effort, and we will bring along ours. And we will let these ladies decide which is best. Either the scintillating taste experience that is Mephisto's chocolat, or whatever you can rustle up from the sundry items lurking among the E-numbers at the back of your fridge. Later that evening, Tanisan and Mrs. Ish sat around the table at Tanisan's house, leafing through various cake recipes. They did have one ace up their sleeve. Mrs. Ishihama's cousin had been on a professional cake-baking course, so they'd borrowed her notes, which contained a number of novel concoctions. How about this, said Mrs. Ish, removing a handwritten sheet from the front of the file. Okinawan gas cake, a tantalising blend of mango and sequoia suspended in a cloud of nitrous oxide. We're trying to woo them with our culinary skill, not laugh them to death, said Danisan. Hold on a second, what's this? Reaching into the plastic pocket at the back, she extracted a neatly typed document entitled Significant Developments in European Confectionery Manufacture Under National Socialism, 1933-1945. to This uh, cousin of yours, remarked Tanisan as she leafed through the text, I assume she emerged from the deeper end of the gene pool. It was, in fact, this cousin's dissertation, and she'd chosen as her topic certain events that were rumoured to have taken place towards the end of 1942 when Hitler ordered all the great confectionery manufacturers of Europe to collaborate in the production of a super chocolate, which would be so irresistible that it would enslave entire nations with its Moorish quality. A madman's dream, you might say. Yet after the surrender in '45, the Allies, wishing to avoid a resurgence of national socialism born on the wings of a tasty sweetmeat, put together a task force to establish the truth behind the rumours, only to have their worst suspicions confirmed. Not only did they discover 
Buried in the ruins of a burnt-out factory in Cologne, the original chocolate moulds bearing the infamous emblem of the Nazi eagle, but a thriving black market in the confection itself. The surviving bars had been covered in gold foil and smuggled out through Switzerland, only to end up in the bank vaults of the rich and famous. To this day, the last few scraps of it were much sought after by wealthy buyers in the US and the Far East. Nazi chocolate, said Tanisan. Of course. Why, if I could just get my hands on a little piece of that, it wouldn't matter if my baking were rubbish. I could still win. At this, Mrs. Ishihama got to her feet and gave a cheer. Well, thank heavens for the good old Nazi, she said, saving the day as usual. Hip hip, hooray! Hip hip, hooray! Hip hip, hooray! Early the following morning, Tanisan decided to pay a visit to her cousin, who was very high up in the Ministry of Certain Things. The press had once described him as one of the big beasts of the new administration. Yet when Tanisan strode into his office that morning unannounced, he seemed more like a startled rodent. What is it, cousin? he simpered. What's wrong? None of your business, said Tanisan. All you have to do is to scratch backs, pull strings and fiddle with knobs. I need everything you have on contraband Nazi chocolate and how it's been smuggled into the country. Oh, no, 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 whined the minister. You can't keep asking me to do these things. I could get into an awful lot of trouble. Yes, I suppose now would be as good a time as any to tell you a little bit about the relationship between these two. When they were children, they lived in the same neighbourhood and often spent time at each other's houses. Yet, Tanisan being Tanisan and a year or so older... She'd taken great pleasure in bullying her cousin mercilessly, especially when she had no homework to do or there was nothing very much on television. Indeed, this had remained pretty much the case in the years since, although life had taken them in very different directions. Oh dear, said Tanisan, wiggling her fingers as she approached him from the other side of the desk. That is unfortunate, because you know what happens when you say no to me, don't you? My fingers start to get all tickly. Tickle, tickle, tickle. No, no, don't come any closer, warned the minister, backing up against the wall. Armed guards are just a phone call away. Tickle, 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 went Tanisan, ignoring his empty threats. Get ready, she warned. Here they come. Here come my tickling fingers. He was laughing hysterically, as his staff in the outer office could hear, even though she hadn't laid a finger on him yet. However, once she had him on the floor and began tickling his neck, it was so unbearable that he gave in straight away. Tickle, 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 repeated Tanisan robotically, a crazed glint in her eye. All right, all right, he said, stop. Oh, oh stop, stop, please. I'll talk to Harada in internal affairs. Just, oh, just give me a moment. I'll do it. I'll do it. A few minutes later, his private secretary stepped into the office and handed him a dossier. <clears throat> well, uh, cousin, he said, struggling to reassert some small measure of dignity. It seems that you were right. For some years now, there's been a thriving black market in the confectionery of rogue states and oppressive regimes. It was the uh, delicious fruit flans of the Argentinian junta that were once on every connoisseur's wish list, uh, whereas today the market is largely dominated by Iranian candy floss and North Korean lemon drizzle cake. Interestingly, though, it is this Nazi chocolate that still seems to fetch the highest prices. OK, thanks, said Tanisan, snatching the file off him. I'll read the rest myself. Say hello to your mother for me. Hold on a second, said her cousin as she headed out of the door. 
You can't take that. It's a classified document. You can have it back, she said, when you return my copy of Moomin Summer Madness. But that was over 40 years ago, he called out after her. I don't even know where it is anymore. After leaving the ministry, Tanisan took a train to Nishishinjuku. On the way, she leafed through the notes at the back of the file. Appendix 3 consisted of a map of a spot on the west coast of Ishikawa Prefecture. Several ramshackle structures indicated Ogi Airfield, a private airstrip close to the coast. According to the footnotes, this was being used to bring in large quantities of black market confectionery, including the infamous milk chocolate of the Third Reich. So she decided there and then to intercept these shipments. In fact, Tanisan was willing to do just about anything to win this cake-baking challenge. It was for this very reason that she now exited Tochimai Station and made her way across the plaza to the headquarters of Tanisan Industries. The receptionist spotted her as she stepped into the executive elevator, so she phoned up to the 55th floor to warn the board in advance. The weekly meeting was already underway. On one side of the table sat the usual assortment of senior executives, while across from them were various sea creatures swimming about in tanks for reasons that I can't be bothered to go into here. A high-backed chair at one end of the table was reserved for Tanisan, should she deign to turn up, while directly opposite sat Captain Uehara, the chairman of the board. Sighing heavily, he slumped in his chair as she took her place at the head of the table and proceeded to give them the same little speech that she always gave. Gentlemen, she said, and I use the term loosely, let me assure you that I'm not here to disrupt these proceedings in any way. Far be it from me to interfere in your various doings. So please feel free to continue your discussions while I just sit here and listen nicely. As per usual, no one was keen to get the ball rolling because they all knew what was coming next. So in the end, the captain took it upon himself to do the necessary. Uh, yes, he said, well, we were just discussing item six on the agenda, the introduction of the new... Stop, said Tanisan, putting up her hand. She then pointed a finger to the seat that the little executive next to her was sitting on. Can someone explain to me what happened to the wooden chairs that they used to sit on? These fancy ones look very expensive. We got rid of them, said the captain as he sat there, slowly massaging his temples. I told you all this last time. It wasn't in keeping with the image of the company. But Tanisan wasn't listening. Instead, she was playing with the controls on her chair, making the seat go up and down. She sank down out of sight below the table, only to appear again a moment or two later, with a big grin on her face. And all the time, the captain just sat there watching her, until he could stand it no longer. Is there any particular reason why you decided to join us here today? he asked. Tanisan stopped fiddling with the buttons and looked across at him. Well, yes, there is, actually, she said. I've come here today to talk about the flying squid. The flying squid, he echoed flatly, as if she'd just said jellied fairy brains in hummingbird sauce. Yes, said Tanisan. What about it? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? No, shrugged the captain. Well, it's actually called the Japanese flying squid, isn't it? said Tanisan. Not the Chinese flying squid, or the Korean flying squid, or even the Royal Canadian flying squid. Here she gave a mock salute. And yet every year, our fisheries division loses thousands of tons of this precious national resource to our enemies. They snaffle them up from under our very noses, the little devils. And that is why it is absolutely vital 
that we stay one step ahead in the unlikely realm of airborne squid fishery. The captain gave a weary sigh. Oh yes, he said, and how exactly are we going to do that? With aeroplanes, announced Tanisan with a grin. So just to get rid of her, the board signed off on the purchase of a light aircraft to be retrofitted with fishing nets and a six-month lease on one of the tumble-down hangars at Ogi Airfield, the hub of the Nazi chocolate smuggling operation. Posing as mechanics, Tanisan and Mrs Ishihama joined the three-man pilot and maintenance crew. While the others were busy trying to set up Tanisan's ridiculous twin-prop trawler for catching flying squid, they sat about in their oily overalls, keeping an eye on the various comings and goings. So, what would you do if you actually won this cake-baking contest? asked Mrs Ish as they sat outside the hangar on that first night. What do you mean, if? said Tanisan. Of course I'm going to win. And when I do, I'm going to buy her stupid cake shop and shut it down. Mrs Ishihama fell silent for a moment, lost in her own thoughts. But won't the Nazis have a thing or two to say about that? she asked. Tanisan gave a long, exasperated sigh. Probably not, she said. Oh, and why is that? asked her friend. Because, said Tanisan, as I explained to you once at my house, twice at yours and at least three times on the way up, they're all, ever so slightly, dead. Oh no, said Mrs Ishihama, clearly alarmed. Was it food poisoning? Just then there was the distant thrum of a single aero engine. In the failing light of dusk, a light aircraft touched down at the far end of the runway and taxied along the apron before coming to rest on a strip of concrete next to the perimeter fence. Nearby there was a grey van. Two men emerged from the cockpit of the plane and went round to the cargo hatch. They then removed a wooden crate and carried it over to the waiting vehicle. Tanisan and Mrs Ish jumped into the cab of the Tanisan Industries van parked nearby and followed this other vehicle out. Soon they were travelling down a long straight road through whispering paddy fields bathed in moonlight. Half a kilometre further on, the grey van took a left at a break in the trees and continued along an overgrown track towards some gates. Tanisan parked on the grassy verge and turned off her engine. They walked the rest of the way. The gates opened out into the delivery yard of a small factory long abandoned. To their left stood three storage tanks and a crumbling administration building. For no apparent reason, Mrs Ish picked up a small stone and threw it at one of the admin block's two remaining windows, which shattered with a tinkle. Yay! she went, throwing up her arms in triumph. She was just about to hurl another when Tanisan stopped her and put a hand over her mouth. Shh! What are you doing? she hissed. They're going to know that we're here and we don't want that, do we? They carried on towards the main building, a dilapidated two-storey structure with sliding doors at the front. These were partially open, and through the gap they could see a pale light emanating from within. A metal staircase ran up the outside to a door on the upper storey, so very quietly they made their way up to the top and went inside. Looking down from a catwalk, they could see the grey van parked in a bay with the back doors open. And then the smell of melting chocolate came wafting up towards them, sending out ghostly tendrils to tickle their nostrils. It was coming from an enormous double-boiler cooking pot 
that was squatting over a charcoal fire in the middle of the factory floor. It was so big that there was a set of wooden steps leading up to the top of it, and next to them a long table on which was stacked a number of chocolate moulds. At that moment, a door swung open and two figures came striding into view. Tanisan was so surprised when she saw who it was that she almost stood up and gave the game away. First to emerge was Mrs Zoe, dressed in a smart grey suit and dark glasses. She was followed by the equally unpleasant Mrs Kander. They went over to the van, lifted out the crate and set it down on the table between them. Then Mrs Zoe took a crowbar to the top and extracted a heavy gold object shaped like a brick and stamped with the emblem of the Nazi eagle. She placed it on the table between them and with consummate dexterity began to peel away the thin layer of foil that covered it. This revealed a rather ordinary-looking block of plain milk chocolate and yet Kander and Zoe continued to treat it with the utmost reverence. Placing it on a chopping board, they cut it carefully into segments. Then Mrs Zoe carried some of them up the steps and dropped them into the pot, using a long pole to mix them in with the melted chocolate that she'd already prepared. The overall effect on the ladies up in the gallery was dramatic. The sweet aroma that they had so far enjoyed was suddenly elevated to a whole new level of hyperscrumptiousness. Then from one or another, I can't remember which, there came a loud tummy rumble. Unfortunately, the more they tried to suppress these sounds, the more their bodies betrayed them, until in the end, the rumbles from above were so frequent and so loud, they drew the attention of those down below. Who is that? Who's up there? barked Mrs Kander, looking up to the catwalk. Then all of a sudden, a single gunshot rang out. I advise you to show yourselves, urged Mrs Kander. My associate is a crack shot among her many accomplishments. Realising that they had literally been rumbled, Tanis Anna and Mrs Ish stood up and raised their hands. But as they sidled over to the staircase that would take them down to the factory floor, Tanis Anne leant in and whispered to her friend. Have you got that other stone? she said. Give it to me. As luck would have it, Mrs Ish still had the second stone that she'd been saving up for the last window in the admin block. So she handed it to Tanis Anne. In the meantime, Mrs Zoe who was stood at the top of the cooking pot steps, kept her 9mm automatic trained on them as they made their way over to the table where Mrs Kander was waiting. Mrs Tanny, said the latter in astonishment, what are you doing here? The game's up, Kander, said Tanisan, bluffing as best she could. You may as well give up now while you still can. Why? asked her nemesis, casting an apprehensive glance at the sliding doors behind them. Who else is with you? Oh, there's no one here but us, Mrs Ish cheerfully volunteered. We did this all by ourselves, without any kind of planning or preparation. Not even our best friends know that we're here. Well, well, grinned the loathsome Mrs K. That does put a slightly different complexion on the matter, doesn't it? It changes nothing, said Tanisan, who would have quite happily shot Mrs Ish herself at that moment. Whatever you're doing, stop it. You can't win. Let me assure you that we can said Mrs. Kander. Only a very small quantity of this remarkable milk chocolate guarantees absolute subjugation. That is how we shall secure our place as Japan's premier boutique chocolatier and luxury cake maker.
Not if I have anything to do with it, said Tanisan, and with that she turned and threw the stone that Mrs. Ish had given her straight at Mrs. Zoe, hitting her right between the eyes. This had several consequences. First of all, the bridge of Mrs. Zoe's glasses snapped under the impact and the lenses fell away. Then, without so much as a squeak, she toppled backwards into the pot, letting go of the last few pieces of Nazi chocolate, which went tumbling down the steps. Tanisan made a grab for them, but Mrs. Kander got there first, and before anyone could do anything, she stuffed them into her mouth. With a kind of wild exultation, she grinned grotesquely, her teeth streaked with chocolate. But then a look of panic flitted across her face, and in the next instant, she began to choke. Lurching sideways, she clutched at her throat. Then just as quickly, the fit passed, and she stood bolt upright, her chocolate-smeared features utterly blank. Tanisan went up to her and peered into her eyes. The pupils were fixed and dilated. There was nobody home. Total zombification by delicious Nazi chocolate, concluded Tanisan. I can think of worse fates. Just then there was a loud screech from over in the cooking pot area and a lumpy brown item rose up out of the simmering chocolate like something from a horror movie. Very slowly it hauled itself over the lip and began staggering down the steps, leaving a trail of rapidly cooling chocolate in its wake. As these globules hardened, so did the creature, until at last it solidified completely. Tanisan walked over and tapped it on the head. Ditto, she said. It soon became clear that the large amounts of Nazi chocolate ingested by Kander and Zoe had turned them, albeit temporarily, into highly suggestible chocolate zombies, so much so that they would do anything they were told. So then Tanisan had the bright idea of getting them to turn themselves in at the local police station. However, a week or so later, Mrs. Ishihama was out shopping in Ikebukuro when she thought she saw the pair getting onto a bus. So later that morning she called Tanisan to tell her. No, no, you're mistaken, said Tanisan, as she made her way along her newly painted hallway, past her spotlessly clean toilet and through her exquisitely organised kitchen to the back window. Adjusting the blind, she looked out into her garden, where a pair of middle-aged women were planting flowers. It must have been two other people, she said.